G'day Footyology listeners, Roko here. Enjoy our podcast? Well, you can become an official Footyology podcast supporter simply by using the supporter feature through ACAST. There's no subscription or regular commitment, just the sheer satisfaction that comes with knowing you've kept the debt collectors from our door. No, just kidding. It does help though. If you want to get started, you just need to follow the support this show link in the show description. Thanks again. And now let's get on with it. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast with Rowan Connolly and Mark Fine. G'day everyone, welcome to the Footyology Podcast. This is the round four preview edition. We're up and running, we've had a couple of rounds, there's trends starting to become apparent, there's teams in trouble, there's controversy and uh, there's more unexpected twists in just how this season is going to look after uh, the drama of Conor McKenna's uh, coronavirus contraction, or or was it? Uh, we'll talk about that. Uh, but uh, firstly, a very good morning to my footyology co-host, Mark Fine. How are you going, Fine? Yeah, I'm well. It's uh, gee, We know it's winter, nice and cold here as we record this edition of footyology in the morning. And yeah, I guess we've heard a little bit about the future of what the AFL season will look like from the AFL, but things are changing, aren't they? We know now that Victoria, in terms of coronavirus, is a different set of circumstances to the rest of Australia. So we'll just see how all of that plays out on the football field. We will indeed. Uh, Good thing to know, though, Fanny, that in a, uh, a sea of uncertainty and inconsistency, there is something in this world that is always consistent and always quality. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's the burger you crave for. I'm sure it's an Andrews hamburger. In fact, that's a really good point, consistency, because aren't things changing? And aren't certain companies, organisations out there sort of maybe under the, under the cloak of COVID changing the rules, but not Andrews hamburgers? Incredibly, right through even the darkest times when we were restricted to very little movement, there were Andrew's Hamburgers continuing what they've done for 81 years. Make that magnificent burger. That burger that we all crave at 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park, doesn't change. It's consistent with those, as you say, succulent meat patties. The How do you describe the lettuce and tomato? Uh, beating with uh, the moisture of absolute freshness and I know you love the buns and it all remains as it was prior to and as it will be forever at 144 Bridport Street Albert Park under the watchful eye of Andrew's Hamburgers this town in fact this country's long-standing favorite hamburger Andrew's Hamburgers and and we know that you get similar consistency with the marvelous builds at West Point Properties Nick Spartels and the crew have worked right through, continuing to give great rebuilds and also new homes to people within the southeastern suburbs of Melbourne. So there's two examples of as good as they ever were, and don't we look for that as good as they ever were in these ever-changing times. All right, uh, a seamless plug that was, and uh, hopefully this will be a seamless show. Let's get started. On Footyology, Newsfeed. All right, 
right. Uh, well, we've got some more movement on the fixturing front. Uh, the AFL on uh, Wednesday announcing the round six fixture. We were expecting them to announce the next two rounds, but again, another sign of just how fluid this um, virus situation is. They have released the round six fixture only. So here it is, Thursday evening, July 9th. St Kilda will play Geelong at Marvel Stadium. Friday evening at the MCG, Collingwood takes on Brisbane. Saturday, July the 11th, Fremantle plays Melbourne at Metricon Stadium. West Coast plays Adelaide at the Gabba. Essendon plays the Western Bulldogs at Marvel Stadium, 7.40pm. Hawthorne simultaneously takes on the Gold Coast at the MCG. That could be the first time we've had uh, simultaneous night games at Marvel and the MCG, I'd suggest. And Sunday afternoon, Port Adelaide playing GWS at Metricon Stadium, 105. Carlton playing Sydney, the MCG, 335. And North Melbourne finishing it off against Richmond at Marvel Stadium, 610 PM. So uh, a bit to digest there, Finey. What are the most important elements out of that for you? Well, that we continue sort of in the current current Victorian teams are given one more week in Victoria because we know that there'll be a couple of teams sent out to the West Australian hub thereafter. And as you said, we thought that we were going to get a bigger slice of the season handed to us this week. Is it, uh, <clears throat> I'm assuming it's because of maybe the changing face of COVID right here where we broadcast from in Victoria, that they're just being a little bit careful with not getting too far ahead of themselves. Well, that would make sense, wouldn't it? So so at this stage, we think Collingwood and Geelong will be the first Victorian clubs heading to Perth. Um, they will play uh, West Coast and Frio will stay in Queensland for round six. They yep. then go back to Perth for round seven, play a derby as the first game at Optus Stadium this year. So that'll be uh, good to look forward to and with the prospect of a crowd as well, which these days is always a bonus. Um, and, uh, yeah, the Cats and Magpies potentially playing each other in Perth. Uh, I mean, is there any fixture which would point out sort of how bizarre things are that the prospect of Collingwood and Geelong playing each other in Perth? Yeah, that <laughs> that puts a exclama- an exclamation mark on where we are in football, doesn't it? And I guess that um, dovetails into the next news item, which is, of course, Collingwood and Geelong being the team selected to go to the WA Hub. Were you surprised that they were the two teams selected? Yeah, I, I don't know that I am. Necessarily, I mean, it could have been anyone, really. No reason, no, uh, you know, <laughs> no more need or less need for them to do it than anyone else. Um, it's, certainly ups, it's funny uh, it like ups that. the ante on both of them in terms of preparation, I guess. It's funny like that because you're spot on. Uh, it could be any two teams. It absolutely doesn't matter. But just my initial reaction was, gee, they've taken two big drawing teams out of Melbourne. But that, that means nothing, doesn't it? Doesn't it? It's sort of funny that uh, I'm so conditioned, and maybe football fans are conditioned to seeing Collingwood, the big drawing side, uh, n- absolutely a 
sort of a non-negotiable fixture at the MCG, but it absolutely doesn't matter because there's no crowds here. So yeah, I guess we have to... I, I, suppose, I suppose you could argue it does matter in a, a TV rating sense, but, I mean, even the rounds we've seen so far have shown that even that's not necessarily a factor. I mean, like, for instance, first game in round four, Sydney Western Bulldogs. I don't know that that would necessarily be considered terrific... TV rating fair. Um, so, yeah, I mean, again, another example of how different this season is, I suppose. Let's uh, move on, of course, and the final, I guess, um, news story relates to Essendon Football Club, and uh, but that's a team that you support, of course. Now, now we have John Worsfold really questioning whether or not Conor McKenna ever had coronavirus. Of course, he's returned a negative. Essendon are going to play this weekend. And the only player that is affected other than Conor McKenna, at one point it looked like the whole back line might have to miss for 14 days, but that has now been reduced just to close contact with James Stewart, who wasn't in the team anyhow. And we wait on another test for Conor McKenna to see whether he's negative confirmed negative or not, but I doubt he'll be selected. That is the general intelligence coming out of the football world. So has this been much ado about nothing or a necessary overcautious approach by the AFL? Oh, there's a few elements to it, isn't there? I mean, I, I think the cautious approach is spot on. Uh, I mean, for, you know, for what it's worth, I was reading yesterday that the um, Department of Health consider you to be positive until you record two negative tests at at least 24 hours apart. So, uh, you know, at the time we do this, um, the status was still up in the air. Um, yeah, look, the other element to it, I guess, is how the whole story's been covered in a, in a media sense. And a couple of things to that end. I mean, Patrick Dangerfield, um, head of the AFLPA, came out and was critical of some of the media coverage. I think there was one in particular, and it was that absolute buffoon Ray Hadley at 2GB who was talking about, oh, you know, the loony lefties in Victoria or something about how everyone had got complacent thinking they were above it, which is sort of pretty rich coming from the state which, you know, uh, docked the Ruby Princess where the whole thing started and actually still has more cases. But without getting into that, tit-for-tat thing. I actually did um, find an interview on Irish radio last night um, about Conor McKenna and the whole thing, and they were quite taken aback at the sort of pointedness of the criticism of Conor McKenna. And there's been a few mea culpas on that score too, haven't they? I think David King uh, put his hand up and said he'd gone a a bit too hard too early. Um, Apparently, Caroline Wilson didn't. Probably no surprises there. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, what, did you find the coverage sort of unduly um, critical of McKenna or, or, you know, was he right to be criticised? I'm not sure how I feel about it, to be honest. Yeah, I do feel that it was very much a witch hunt within the AFL and finger-pointing at Connor McKenna. I said, uh, I think it was uh, our last edition of Footyology, the podcast, that I was aghast to hear the Melbourne Football 
club described as the innocent party in this by implication oh, yeah, yeah. by implication that Essendon and Conor McKenna were somehow the guilty perpetrators of the spread of coronavirus or a lack of you know lack of um diligence in terms of making sure that it didn't enter the club there's no innocent victim here or or, or by inference guilty party here Essendon are as innocent a victim as Melbourne, and that stretches to the greater community. No person that gets coronavirus is guilty of any crime. Absolutely not. And to suggest so within the setting of the AFL, I think is scurrilous, and anybody that has done that should hang their head in shame. Well, why do you think the reporting has been like that? Is it because he was the first? So there's a sort of... I don't know, voyeuristic element to it, or is it, uh, I, I don't know, I, I can't I, work out. I think some people are so not personally invested, just emotionally invested in this AFL season happening that anybody that compromises that they feel is a traitor to the cause and should be singled out for a particular punishment or particular ridicule or, or you know, just subjected to a, a greater um, level of reporting. Now, that's just... First of all, we will want the football season, those of us who love footy, we want it to continue, don't we? Yeah. But, but there's a bigger picture here. I mean, just for those who sat back and pointed fingers at Conor McKenna for letting down Essendon, for letting down potentially the whole competition, just think of it in personal terms for Conor McKenna. Yes, we want football to continue. Yes, we would love this season to play out 17 rounds, get through the finals, give us a premier so we can fill in all the blanks, blank spots and continue on with a competition that has been uninterrupted since it started in 1897. But coronavirus is a serious issue. It is potentially a fatal disease, no matter how old you are. And where was the compassion and the more and the overriding fact that a young man may have or has contracted coronavirus no concern for his well-being just what have you done for the future of the sport what a myopic view and ignoring the really important factor here that potentially even though we're not now sure whether we can confirm whether Connor had coronavirus or not it was like we don't care how ill you are we don't care if it claims your life. You've compromised the competition and we don't know where Essendon and Melbourne are going to play this game. Really, to me, it is forgetting the main issue here and that is that we have a potentially fatal disease being spread through the community and potentially one young man who plays for Essendon had that disease and I am, I, I am scornful of those who took the view of how dare he compromise football. Yeah, well, no, well said. And speaking about complacency, I mean, yeah, it's like people have sort of now forgotten how deadly the thing can be. I mean, maybe they need to sort of revisit some of those scenes from Italy back in, when was it, March, you know, and when there weren't enough ventilators and, you know, there was all almost sort of, you know, natural selection going on in, uh, in, in terms of who could be treated and who couldn't. And obviously we're not going to get to that stage, but it's sort of like 
it, it's now being regarded so that the consequences of the actual virus are being regarded or taken quite lightly, which, um, as you say, is a there's a very human aspect to it, which seemed to, uh, at least temporarily, be forgotten. So a bit of a wake-up call there. It really is. Um, we really have to say to ourselves, hang on, hang on, stop. Because it's not when somebody c- contracts this virus or when we have a changing of the restrictions placed upon us as a result of the virus spreading again, we need to sit back and be a little less selfish and say, this virus isn't about inconvenience, it's about health. And for those who were, who felt that it was inconvenient that Connor McKenna may have contracted the virus, shame on you. Yep, no, absolutely. All right, uh, well, we don't think Connor McKenna's going to be playing, or we're pretty sure he's not going to be playing, but uh, a lot of other people playing. We've got uh, round four coming up, all kicks off Thursday evening. Uh, what do you say, finally, we preview some games? Sounds good. On Footyology, previews with Punch. All right, round four kicking off at the SCG Thursday Thursday, Thursday evening, 7.40 <laughs> between Sydney and the Western Bulldogs. Not quite sure what D it is at the moment, to be perfectly honest, but um, really interesting game, this one, given uh, how well both sides played last week. In fact, I'd argue that Sydney have been playing well all the way through. Um, the Bulldogs obviously hadn't, but uh, great turnaround by them against GWS. Um, some key outs for both. Uh, Tom McCartan not playing uh, for, because of concussion. Uh, Josh Dunkley is the big out for the Western Bulldogs with an ankle injury, and he's out for actually at least six weeks. So... They do have some depth, though, the Bulldogs. That's been one of their strengths. Uh, great flexibility in terms of selection. Um, and their record at the SCG is pretty reasonable, too. They've won a couple of big, uh, close games up there, haven't they? I remember one in 2015, and then their premiership year, they had another narrow win by uh, I think four points. I think it was Jason Johannesson kicking the winning goal up there. But uh, very even. I'm, I'm finding it hard to come up with a winner on this one. What do you reckon? Well, this is sort of a very unfortunate loss for the doggies, doggies to lose Josh Dunkley because they've got one more week of no Lockie Hunter. So this is sort of the going to be the intersect. You had Lockie Hunter, of course, who's been serving a four-week suspension, a club-imposed suspension for uh, that act, you know, that, that silly behaviour during the darkest periods, the most restrictive periods of the COVID lockdown, uh, argument with the girlfriend, out in the car, drinking, smashing into other cars, etc. So I think it comes at a, a difficult time for them to lose Josh Dunkley and swings me in favour of the Sydney Swans. Now, just something on young Tom McCartan. When he got concussed in the game last week against North Melbourne, and he really... It looked bad, didn't it? The eyes were sort of rolling and it it looked like a severe concussion. I was interested that the commentators, either intentionally or by omission through forgetting, uh, didn't discuss the fact that, of course, he's the brother of Paddy McCartan, whose career has come to a screeching halt because of concussion. And the minute it happened, I thought, oh, no. I mean, 
any on the grounds on the grounds of what that they they I mean I I don't know is there a genetic predisposition to concussion? Yep, I would say so. Or, or, or the effects of it? Yeah. But, okay. Well, it's something that the I'm sure that uh, the doctors that are researching and continuing to research into this field will certainly look into whether people have some predisposition towards uh, suffering from long-term effects of concussion. There's no doubt that two players can have what seemingly is a very similar incident with very different outcomes. So they will look at all different aspects of why different people react differently to a concussion incident. And the fact that we've got a brother now of somebody whose career has been put on hold and may never recommence out with concussion does certainly would certainly ring alarm bells, I believe, for people working in that field. And let's hope, fingers crossed, and everybody hoping that for Tom McCartan that this is a one-off incident. But as far as the game is concerned, I believe that Sydney, um, I like, you know, I like the look of the, the I like the cut of their jib last week, Rowan, and I'm going to select them this week. Uh, well, we'll differ on this one, I think, because uh, I, I can't go past the doggies. I thought very impressive against a very good team in GWS. Um, I think once they get their mojo, they tend to keep it for a while. Uh, I think it'll be very close. This I wouldn't be surprised if we have another sort of uh, less than a goal result between these two. So it's going to be very tough for. Whoever gets up, um, I'm just going to stick with the doggies narrowly. So, uh, doggies for me, Sydney for you. All right, uh, let's move to Friday evening, and it is the rematch of last year's epic preliminary final. Remember, who can forget the end of that GWS Collingwood preliminary final with the ball locked in that Collingwood forward line and the Giants defending grimly? And wow, that was. Um, very, very tough stuff. And you'd think this game will be similarly tough. Uh, the difference being that uh, the Giants need a win desperately to get their season back on track. They've had two very uninspiring performances so far with uh, losses to the Doggies last week in North Melbourne the week before. And Collingwood, uh, the official premiership favourite at this stage. Uh, I wonder if they, yeah, probably... Yeah, and it might have happened at one stage last year, but uh, certainly the Pies, very, very impressive against St Kilda last week. Uh, some big ins looming for the Giants. Toby Green and Josh Kelly both expected to return. Lockie Whitfield seems to be, have recovered from his concussion last week okay. So all of a sudden they're looking very, very strong again. Uh, but the Pies could be boosted too. Adam Trelaw has some sort of chance to come back after his calf injury. Potentially Mason Cox as well, who is over a knee injury. Again, finding this incredibly hard to split. Um, who are you going for? I've got to go with the Pies, I guess. Uh, watching them closely firsthand last week in the demolition of the Saints, they just are... We know that they are a high-possession team, and their ball usage was superb against St Kilda, but they also were very good for any contested ball. They seem to, at the moment, have that beautiful blend of holding on to the ball and then pressing the go button and releasing it with some rapid handball, quick movement. The form this year of the 
Three Sons of Guns, two Browns and a Dacos, I think has injected some life and energy into a team that has plenty of good players, but you just have a look at any side that is able to inject that sort of youthful exuberance. It seems to be fairly infectious right around the playing group and Collingwood, to me, are at the moment travelling better than any other side. That's why they're premiership favourites and that's why they get my nod. Well, the, the big difference in them last week for me was just the uh, far more aggressive ball movement. They really played up the ante on the tempo, I think, and uh, they were able to get a lot of uncontested ball forward to centre and that made their entry. I mean, it, it, it's a flow-on effect that made their delivery inside 50 a lot more precise, which meant that those medium-sized forwards like Stevenson and Elliott um, got uh, guilt-edged opportunities. Uh, Majacek loomed as a key target. You know, it just... I think the way... No problem with Collingwood getting the ball. That's never been an issue. It's how they use the ball that so often dictates... Uh, and it can make a huge difference in the quality of their performance. I mean, having said that, they did draw with Richmond the week before, so not too shabby. Um, but, yeah, look, I, even though it's in Sydney and uh, GWS got some impressive personnel back, just not playing nearly well enough for me. I'm not sure you can go from where they were last uh, Friday night to a point where you're upsetting Collingwood in one week. Could be wrong, uh, and I don't think it'll be by a lot, but I'm going for the Pies to win that one as well. Um, All right, let's move to Saturday. First game on Saturday afternoon, Port Adelaide and West Coast playing on on the Gold Coast at Metricon Stadium. And, uh, wow, pretty massive um, uh, contrast between these two sides. Port, of course... On top of the ladder, three and zip. Uh, West Coast, well, won their first game, but boy, have they been dismal in the two since the resumption with uh, terrible losses to first Gold Coast. And then Brisbane, uh, they don't look happy up there. I think they've been too happy to concede. They're not happy up there, if that makes sense. Um, Port, uh, reasonable... Uh, loss for Port, Xavier Dersma, um, what looked like it could be a reasonably serious hamstring injury. And he's one of that band of exciting youngsters. But uh, they've got some key players in form, the power. And Ollie Wines coming back last week and just straight into the thick of the action. Mrs. Wines will be very pleased about that. Um, I'd expect West Coast to turn this around to an extent because they surely, the season's slipping away. They cannot turn in a third sticker in a row. Um, but how do you tip against Port Adelaide at the moment, the way they're playing fine? Well, I'm going to. And Oh, okay. Well, I can give you no reason why West Coast would beat Port Adelaide on current form. Obviously, nobody can. West Coast and Port Adelaide are two vastly different stories since the resumption. Now, the reason I'm tipping West Coast is because this is a team that now, with almost the... Um, a sort of a incentive of the possibility of a grand final being played in Western Australia. And that is a possibility. If, we're, if, if WA are in a position to allow crowds, maximum crowds to go to games of football while Victoria are still in semi-lockdown and don't allow crowds at all, they could well host this year's AFL grand final. WA, uh, West Coast will be heading back to WA in a couple of weeks, 
all of that will count for nothing if they keep losing over in their Queensland hub. So basically, it's season on the line right here, right now. Now, I didn't tip West Coast to finish in the top four even. And I know a lot of people had them to win the flag. But I do have enough uh, faith in them to believe that at their very best, they can unite and not see their season almost disappear this weekend. Now, I, I say there's too much at stake for West Coast. This is almost a grand final for them in a way, and they will come out and be a very different team and beat Port Adelaide. Well, it's a big call. It is a big call. Um, all right. We're interested to see if that one gets up. I can't go past Port. Plenty of respect for West Coast. I still think they're capable of turning it around, however. All right. Uh, back to Melbourne for a couple of big Saturday games. Two pretty appetising games, too. The first at Marvel Stadium, 4.35 Saturday afternoon. St Kilda, your Saints taking on Richmond. Uh, both sides heading into this game off the back of pretty dismal performances. I don't know if St Kilda was dismal, but certainly fell short of the required standard against Collingwood in what was a an interesting test for them, proved that they've still got a fair bit of work to do. And the Tigers, well, you know, hardly panic stations yet, but uh, a couple of pretty unimpressive performances from them in a... Uh, uh, mediocre draw, I guess, and uh, then a shocking loss to Hawthorne last Thursday night where they were absolutely pants by the Hawks in that game. Uh, Marvel Stadium, we've seen some interesting games between those two. Who can forget that one in, what was it, 2017 when the Tigers, or was it 2018 when the Tigers on the middle uh, of a, a winning streak just got absolutely thumped by the Saints who, who came out uh, absolutely firing. Yeah, that was, that was seven, spend... 17, I think. It was 17, yeah, you're right. Um, gee, time goes quick, doesn't it? Obviously, a huge bonus for the Tigers in the return of Dustin Martin from that rib injury. Um, yeah, I've always had a bit of a question mark about Richmond's capacity at Marvel. Um, I don't have their record handy, but it always feels like they're a significantly better team at the MCG than at Docklands. Uh, however... Having said that, I think um, I think the Tiger machine will click into gear finally. They've had their pride stung a fair bit over the last week by that fairly insipid performance. And uh, Dusty back, I reckon they're ready to do some dusting off of their opponents. I'm going for the Tigers to win that one. Yeah, sort of I'm going ditto what I said about West Coast for Richmond, even though Richmond not quite... Uh, in as desperate a situation as the West Coast Eagles, by courtesy of that draw, they are two points better off than them. But nevertheless, this is an abbreviated season and you need to finish top four to be a genuine premiership hope in most years. So things are starting to get... Uh, the clock is ticking, in other words, for the Tigers and they have shown over the last three years when it really matters, apart from that preliminary final loss to Collingwood in 2018 that they are the team for the moment. So I've got no doubt that they will be able to, as you say, dust themselves off, no pun intended with the return of Dusty Martin, to play the sort of football that can beat St Kilda. St Kilda disappointing against Collingwood after giving their fans a great deal of hope against the Bulldogs because a lot of those new players that were added to the team clicked against the Doggies. So... 
with so many new players in the side in this not only abbreviated season but abbreviated training program, I think St Kilda supporters have to expect some sort of swings in form, maybe wild swings in form, but no swing wild enough to beat the Tigers. Richmond for mine. All right, Richmond for both of us. Across town, uh, not long after that game finishes, in fact, almost immediately, uh, another big clash of traditional rivals, Essendon and Carlton. And I think a lot of people just thankful this game's on at all, um, given the uh, amount of doubt cast over it after the Conor McKenna episode. But it's back on. And uh, I guess next positive, probably not if you're a Carlton supporter or person, uh, the next positive that Essendon will field, uh, well, close to a full strength side. Uh, certainly going to have the eight or nine players who it looked like for a, a horrible moment may be unavailable. But Connor McKenna and James Stewart, basically the only uh, exclusions because of the virus. They've got their defence intact. Uh, they don't have Dyson Heppel and... Um, uh, Really sad, actually, to see him break an ankle. He's had some shocking luck with a foot injury, now broken ankle. He's going to be missing for some time. Uh, probably will get back Orazio Fantasia from a quad injury. Important inclusion for them. But I say, finally, I, I looked at this one. I often have trouble tipping in Essendon-Carlton clashes because they can tend to run contrary to the form lines. However, a couple of concerns about the Bombers. I think their record coming off um, breaks of any sort isn't great. And, of course, they had last week's game postponed. And I think the Blues, I mean, that was a sensational win by them down at Geelong last week. Yes, they stopped in the last quarter. But, uh, boy, you know, they've given it everything in that first three and managed to hang on for a great win. I think they're really starting to get a bit of system about the way they play footy, um, some important contributions, even from lesser lights, like, uh, for instance, Sam Gibbons was really important for them early on. Uh, the likes of Casbolt looking strong, their midfielders standing up, Cripps, Murphy, uh, Eddie Betts, uh, fantastic effort from him in the dying seconds against the Cats. It just got a bit of spark about them, and, and having said that, Essendon is unbeaten in its two games, but those two games have been played what, three months apart. It's been a fortnight since the last one. Boy, it's a pretty long haul to get to your third game of the season, isn't it? Um, and I just wonder about the impact of disruption uh, over the uh, over the club, given the week's events. It's going to be tough for them, I think. And I, I just suspect the Blues have got a little bit more going for them. I'm going for Carlton to win very narrowly. Who would have, uh, when we put our tips in last week, a million to one would have been unders if you could have got the combination of Essendon not playing into Carlton beating Geelong at Geelong. That would have been a very um, clever tipster to get that one correct. Oh, I think you hit the nail on the head here in that these games are always very difficult to tip. You tend to throw the form guide out the window when Essendon play Carlton. In fact, Essendon-Carlton-Collingwood is a, uh, a very difficult three-way to work out, to sort out. But... Disruption has been Essendon's bugbear over the last couple of weeks, no question. Not to mention losing Dyson Heppel would be an emotional kick in the guts for the Bombers, seeing how popular the skipper is and how hard he worked to get back into the team last week. That would have been a real emotional 
belting that they copped on that one. And then all this disruption, am I playing, am I not playing, is the back line playing, is the back line not playing? Whereas Carlton have very softly, softly had the biggest upset of the season to enjoy. So I'm going with your tip of Carlton. All right. Uh, let's head up to Metricon Stadium, Saturday evening, 7.40, same time as the Essendon Carlton game. Gold Coast taking on Fremantle. Now, what price would you have had on doing an intro to a game between Gold Coast and Fremantle and throwing in the phrase like, boom team? Um, and I'm talking about either of them, but uh, look, Fremantle, despite not having won, haven't been too shabby, but Gold Coast, in fact, there's a story by Shane Hope on the Footyology website at the moment asking whether Gold Coast are becoming everyone's second favourite team. They are certainly um, good to watch. They play an attractive brand of footy, which uh, is a, uh, a good selling point in itself at the moment, perhaps. The excitement of Matt Rowell. Um, wow. I mean, you know, we've sung this kid's praises, but uh, arguably six Brownlow votes from his last two games. Ben King looking really strong up forward as a key target and having to absorb a fair bit of opposition attention, but responding to it brilliantly. Um, and the senior guys have really stood up too. I mean, you can see the, I guess, the renewed enthusiasm of, of the likes of Took Miller and David Swallow, Brandon Ellis already proving an inspired addition, and Hugh Greenwood uh, proving an inspired addition for them too. Boy, their, their midfield, just with Greenwood and Rao going through it, is so much um, so much tougher, I think, than it has been. So huge plus for them. They're on their home ground, of course. No, or limited crowd to cheer them on, but uh, that has to be some sort of advantage. Look, again, I, I don't think the Dockers are, are going too shabbily. Um, you know, I, I thought they were pretty okay against Port last week, and I thought they were good against Essendon back in round one, and uh, I thought not too far off the pace either in round two. You know, so a bit of luck. I think they could have had at least four match points up there. I'm going for, it sounds funny calling any game tipping against Gold Coast an upset, but I'm going for a minor upset here. I reckon Frio, I just wonder if, you know, Gold Coast can sustain that sort of bubble for a, a third week in a row. Um, I think Frio tactically are pretty sound under Justin Longmuir. I'll be interested to see how they break their game down, but I'm going for the Dockers to win this one uh, by a kick. I'm in shock. I consider that a major upset. I don't think. Yeah, that... well, it's like well, it's like you tipping West Coast against Port. And I pointed out each and every week, don't I? It is the same thing, and that is no that they rely just too much on Walters and Fife. I mean, for me, that really is sort of the the essence of the problem of the Fremantle Football Club. It's just this continual reliance on the same two players. And it's easy for the opposition, I think, Rowan, to counter that. And even though those players continue to play well, I've got to say, it's not a winning formula for the Fremantle Football Club. So for me, Gold Coast, in fact, I'm going as far as saying Gold Coast are my sort of tip of the week. They're my certainty. Well, just a hunch. How good will I look if the Dockers get up? All right, let's uh, talk about the three Sunday games. The first of them at 1.05 at the Gabba. And it is Brisbane on home turf and uh, bowling along pretty well after that glitch in round one. Up against 
clearly the worst side in the competition right at the moment. The hapless Adelaide smashed in the showdown and then smashed last week by Gold Coast. Um, they are looking terrible. Wrote a, a column for ESPN during the week about the Crows. Very hard to separate the off-field from the on-field there. They just look so, such a dispirited bunch of players at the moment, Finey. Really hard to see how quickly they're going to be able to turn that around. Um, their stars aren't firing. Tex Walker, of course, huge full concerns over him. Shocking uh, games by a couple of other senior players last week. Rory Weed had one of his most error-prone games that I remember seeing him deliver. Uh, as we've talked about a bit, not getting much drive out of the Crouch brothers. Rory Sloan just going, you know, where's the inspiration coming from? Um, I feel really sorry for Matthew Nix. Uh, he already had a sizable job given that they're basically rebuilding, but just looks like a uh, an incredible task now because he's dealing not only with a, a changing of the guard player-wise, he's, he's dealing with a club that appears very fractured and uncertain off the field. And what a contrast to the Adelaide we came to know for so many years is steering such a steady ship. Brisbane, on the other hand, um, pretty impressive last week. Uh, they're on home turf. Uh, Dave Zorko, a, a last-minute withdrawal last week, but uh, looks like he'll be okay. Even his replacement, Cam ellis Yolman came in and played pretty well for them. Um, I think they win this one very easily indeed. In fact, I would say this is probably the certainty of the round. What say you? Yeah, I said Gold Coast, Frio... Almost a certainty of the round. You're right, this one is the certainty of the round. I mean, Brisbane took a little bit of time maybe um, from the resumption to feel like their normal selves, um, but they won, they've won. they won both games and now it looks like we're rolling into the Brisbane that was so impressive at the end of, or throughout last season, maybe not the end of last season, their finals campaign fell a bit flat, but certainly the Brisbane that lost to Hawthorne in round one seems a distant, uh, team to the one that will beat Adelaide on the weekend. No problems tipping the Lions. No problems at all with that one, mate. All right, back to Melbourne for the second Sunday game. 3.35pm start. Melbourne taking on Geelong. Uh, the Demons, of course, with that unscheduled pause in their season after the Essendon um, coronavirus stuff, and that had to be postponed. Geelong, boy, uh, you'd think they'd be stinging down there this week after uh, you know losing a rare game at home against Carlton. And uh, they just didn't turn up for three quarters of the Cats. When they did, almost did enough to pinch the points. But uh, let's be honest, didn't really deserve them. It would have been a steal. Um, just, I don't know, they couldn't seem to get much flow or system or anything. Uh, you know, Rasava Radagalia sort of, Accident prone, that bizarre thing where he prevented Tom Hawkins scoring a goal. Um, uh, they've got some injury problems too. Uh, Sam Menegola has had back issues this week, may not play. Luke Dalhouse concussed, may not play. Reece Stanley, uh, that's probably the one with the greatest ramifications, of course, in the ruck. I mean, that's a sore point for the Cats. And what a week to have him in doubt with uh, coming up against Big Maxi Gorn. So, Gee, uh, they've got, got their work cut out for them. Um, Jack Stephen played his first game underdone. He'll be better for that run. Uh, in fact, I'm, I'm, as I'm talking here, I'm wondering why on earth am I tipping Geelong? 
Um, well, I guess mainly because Melbourne are a bit of an unreliable conveyance. We saw even in that last performance against Carlton, they looked terrific for a half or so and then just completely died. I mean, the gap between their best and worst is uh, an absolute chasm. Um, pretty good chance for them this week, though. Uh, and if they get off to a good start, the Cats are really going to be in a bit of strife. But... I don't know. Look, I'm not jumping off the cats yet. I think they're generally a pretty reliable side. Uh, no doubt their pride's been stung by what happened against Carlton. I think they'll bounce back. I don't think it'll be easy for them, but I think they're good enough to win it. Strange game of football. There's so many factors, as you've already mentioned, to figure before you put your selection in because you've got Melbourne, who didn't play last week, Melbourne, whose form had been very sketchy, Melbourne, who fell in against Carlton, and then Geelong, whose form had been good, failing, albeit narrowly on the score, but but morally by a long way against Carlton. And, yeah, it's, it's just hard to sort of work out exactly where these two teams sit following a curious fortnight of football and non-football. Those losses for Geelong, Reece Stanley, as you said, potentially not playing with Max Gorn, we know a potential dominant figure in the ruck could be telling and also whether or not the Geelong side that seem more comfortable at their home ground can then move to the MCG, where we know they've been sort of tested and failed in at least finals football in recent years, and be able to pick up where they left off two weeks ago rather than where they left off last week. I'm going to tip Melbourne. I'm not totally confident in the selection, but I feel as though Geelong may be found out as they will be as the year sort of continues for leg speed and for sort of the versatility and mobility that you need to have to be a very competitive unit. And I I fear with Radigalia sort of lumped at at centre-half forward and Hawkins at full forward and Harry Taylor at centre-half back, I think they've just got a lot of... um, of clunky football with not a lot of room to make the necessary changes or adjustments week in, week out. So I'm going for Melbourne. All right. Yeah, not, not a, a, it wouldn't be a massive upset, certainly. Um, absolutely justified going for the Demons there, I think. And round four finishes off at Marvel Stadium Sunday evening, 6.10 start. It is the uh, those great rivals of the mid-70s, finally, Hawthorne and North Melbourne. I wonder how far down the track you can stop referring to a rivalry that uh, admittedly now is uh, 45 years old. There you go, proving our age. Uh, North, disappointing last week against Sydney, and um, they tend to do that. They start looking good, and you wrap them up, and then they uh, deliver an ordinary one. Um, Not taking anything away from Sydney. Sydney were very good. But Hawthorne, in contrast, couldn't have been any more impressive against the Tigers. Really rediscovered everything that you like about the Hawks. Got fantastic drive out of Isaac Smith on a wing. Jay Gromira, seamless in the midfield. Um, they functioned very effectively up forward. Their defence was superb. Uh, and uh, full credit to them and full credit to Alistair Clarkson for, uh, again, marshalling what appears... Or we, we differ on this one, but I, I think the Hawks are a definite top eight prospect and could do a bit of damage once they get in there. Um, mate, you know, they're always the if being the depth of that midfield group, but I think for the moment it's looking pretty good, certainly with Tom Mitchell back. 
Now, speaking about um, midfield groups, North Melbourne, no Ben Cunnington last week, and uh, that proved absolutely critical in them losing to the Swans. Now, as, as we record this, we, we haven't got the teams in front of us. Uh, I think it's about a 50-50 proposition on Cunnington returning this week from a back injury. So absolutely fingers crossed for them on this one. Um, they play Marvel Stadium pretty well, so give them a few points there. Hard one to tip this one. I, I just suspect Hawthorne was so impressive last week, I'm finding it pretty hard to consider tipping against them this week. So uh, I'm not jumping off the ruse. I think they've got plenty to offer, but I just think Hawthorne might start to tap into a, a reasonably rich vein of form at the moment. I'm going for the Hawks to win this one. We haven't agreed much this round, but I'm also going to go for Hawthorne. North Melbourne do need Cunnington in that midfield. They're, like I've sort of accused Hawthorne of, not great depth in the midfield for North Melbourne either, and if Cunnington doesn't play, that's a bad thing. And if he does play and he's not 100%, which may be on the cards as well, well, that's not desirable either. Hawthorne showed on the on last weekend, look, that's a great win to pulverise Richmond. And let's not sort of just gloss over that. I know that Richmond uh, early in the season may not be going at 100%. And they weren't brilliant the week before against Collingwood. But any team that can come out and make Richmond look second rate needs to be treated with due respect. So just on a, a current form basis, and both of these teams don't have to factor in the opposition not playing last week or themselves not playing last week, which was a uh, an element in a couple of the games that we've discussed, just on sheer current form, I'm with you and I tip Hawthorne. All right, Hawthorne for you, Hawthorne for me. So just having a quick look, how many do we differ on? We differ on three. I've gone for Port, you've gone for West Coast. I've gone uh, stupidly, you say, for Fremantle. You've gone for Gold Coast. I've gone for Geelong. You've gone for Melbourne. Interesting tipping around this one. We don't usually differ that much. That is true. So let's see whose tips will prevail. All right, there's previews of the nine games. And good to have nine games rather than just eight in round four. What do you say we change the pace a bit, Fanny? Because I, I feel like, uh, as we're prone to do, stepping back in time and, and talking about some other stuff, some music, some movies, some TV. Does that sound like a good idea? I'm looking forward to being young again. Let's go back in time. All right, let's do it right now. Vinyl and video. Pressing rewind on our favourite music, movies and TV. All right, it was my choice this week, Finey. We did the 80s last week. We are staying in the 80s, but we're going back just a few years to 1982. Ah, what a year. Uh, I don't know about you. Oh, yes, I think we were both doing our HSC in 1982. So it was those uh, uh, memorable days when you finished your schooling period of your life and moved tentatively into adulthood not before a considerable amount of partying. Big year. Big year in music too. Uh, some of the ones that caught my eye in 1982, uh, from an Australian perspective, we had uh, the Angels releasing Night Attack. In excess brought out Shabu Shabar. That was a huge album and one of their better efforts, definitely. Uh, and I found it really hard to choose between two albums because one of my all-time favourite <laughs> albums, Fonny, which uh, came out later in that year, 
Uh, you're right there. Did we catch that on? <laughs> um, Simple Minds, New Gold Dream. Uh, one, I, I think the best produced album I've ever heard. Uh, Simple Minds went off pretty quickly after this, but that is their apex. Magnificent album, incredible keyboard sounds, very atmospheric. I love that record. However, I couldn't go past this one because for mine, this is the single most distinctive Australian rock album. Uh, I love this album dearly to me. And every time I'm overseas, I wrote a piece on footyology about this, actually, if you want to have a look and uh, get to our Patreon page, become a patron and you can read this piece. Uh, every time I'm overseas, I put this album on and I'm instantly transported back to the Outback or uh, New South Wales or the cane fields in Queensland or travelling around on a bus or hitching somewhere. This record just smacks of Australia in both its its lyrical content and its attitude and its sound. It is Circus Animals by Cold Chisel. And they're a mighty band chisel, but they, for mine, never, ever got better than this album. Listen to this track listing. You got nothing I want that uh, up yours to the US. Bow River. Classic song, incredible guitar from Ian Moss. Forever Now, uh, a more laid-back ballady favourite of radio. The big trifecta for me of tracks, Taipan, Hound Dog and Wild Colonial Boy. Uh, Wild Colonial Boy for me, almost a de facto national anthem just with its uh, rebellious spirit and uh, incredible riffs. No good for you, numbers fall, when the war is over, another radio staple, and Letter to Ellen, an absolutely incendiary finish there. Ian Moss is just at his unbelievable best on this record. Barnsey is in fine vocal form. Don Walker's songwriting is brilliant. Uh, this is just such an incredible album. I've been playing it a lot lately, admittedly, but cannot go past Circus Animals, Cull Chisel as my album of 1982. You a chisel fan, fine. I have been. I was. Am I still not as much? Though I do distill a few songs that I consider a, a classic. So sort of my favourite. I don't know where does. Given that you're a, a real um, aficionado of cold chisel, and I, I think you're the sort of person I could I could ask if so and so is my favourite song. Where does that pitch me as a chisel fan? So my yeah. fa- my my. All-time favourite song of theirs is Star Hotel. Oh, yeah? No, well, that's off East. And a lot of people say East, which was the album before, is their best album. Yeah, Star Hotel's fantastic. But to me, Star Hotel is a track that would also fit very comfortably on Circus Animals. They did, I mean, they, they could get a bit too bluesy for me, but their Circus Animals is them at their angriest, rockingest, sort of pub rock best. I think Star Hotel fits in there comfortably. And I love East too. I reckon that's a great album. I'll tell you, sit down and listen to Circus Animals start to finish. It is a sonic journey through the um, the psyche of this country. All right, what's your album of 1982? Well, I think it's an album that you would have some kinship with. And I don't know whether you're a big Midnight Oils fan. And Mate, I'm, a- I'm a massive Midnight Oil fan. And I was a big Midnight Oils fan. I went to see them live in a failed concert at the Seaview Ballroom in Melbourne. Failed, why? Because there we were upstairs in the concert room at Seaview Ballroom. Graham Richmond was on hand, by the way, I remember, because he had to usher people out. And for people that know the old Seaview Ballroom, there was a larger area downstairs and then really just a small 
in terms of hosting a band room upstairs, like a ballroom really, but a smallish one, and four or five songs in, a very raucous crowd, um, some somebody launched a stubby that hit the drummer, Kerr, whatever his name was. Rob, Rob, Rob Hurst. Oh, Hurst, sorry, Rob Hurst. Um, and um, the front man, the rather imposing Peter Garrett, called the whole dang thing off. Wow, okay. What year was that? Oh, I don't know. Around this time. Definitely, okay. definitely around right. this time. So, well, tell us about the album. 1982, an album that I think sort of, Harold, didn't you correct me if I'm wrong? The politis, the the political, politicas, what's the word? Polit- Politicisation. That's a tough word to politicise. You know what? Politicisation. Politicisation. That's a tricky word. And I'm normally not somebody who fumbles over words. Yeah. It's when, to me, Midnight Oil entered into politics and forever the two would be entwined, as we know, Peter Garrett. And his future would indicate that. But ten nine eight seven six five four three two one. That's a very wordy album title. I guess it speaks longer than it reads. Um, saw them enter into forever the public psyche as a band that was very much uh, had a voice to speak in current world affairs, didn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, look, I, I think they were always a political band, but I guess it was more overt on this album. Um, you know, the best two representations of that are two of their biggest ever hits, US Forces and um, Power and the Passion. Well, th- um, there you have it. I mean, you've got US Forces, really, if, if anybody was in any doubt as to where Midnight All sat uh, in terms of their political leanings and also the fact that they wanted them to be heard, you know, US Forces... It just simply screams it from the highest parapet, doesn't it? There's no question, therefore, at any time thereafter, exactly what Midnight Oil stood for. There were no more, you know, last last, last train tram to Bondi or whatever it was. This was now... Buster well, Bondi. Buster Bondi, whatever. I was going to say Buster Bondi. I don't know why I said You're tram. being exposed here. Come on. Well, I'm not... Well, again... Again, I'm not. I never said I was a huge Midnight Oils fan, but I it's was, not Midnight Oils. It's Midnight Oil. <laughs> I knew that. And and a Midnight Oils fan. I, I, that was with the no, possessive oil. Uh, no, it was with the possessive comma. Okay. <laughs> This is like that episode of Family Guy where Peter Griffin takes Lois to a Kiss concert, I think, and, and I said she gets to sing the most famous line and stuffs it up or something. Anyway, go on, sorry. At least, she, at least she was a personal friend of the lead singer. I can't say that I'm a personal friend of Peter Garrett's. Um, will you go through the track listings then for me? Because I like this band, Midnight Oils. <laughs> um well, it's an, an important album. It was produced by Nick Warney, so they sort of upped the ante on the production front on this one and incorporated a lot more brass and sort of weird and wonderful sounds, big studio influence. Um, my favourite track on it is probably Only the Strong, which is, you know, uh, most devoted Oils fans like yourself. <laughs> <laughs> hey, um, did you just say Oils fans? Yeah, but oils. So when you say the oils, they're called the oils. 
Well, uh, <laughs> I think you'll find they're called midnight oil. They are called midnight <laughs> oil, but people also say the oils. Uh, only the strong. Uh, read, read about it, another favourite. Um, like to say, US Forces and Power and the Passion. Love the last song too, actually. Somebody's trying to tell me something. This was the album which sort of catapulted them from, you know, very popular Australian band to sort of superstar status. Um, and uh, as you say, did up the ante on the politicisation of their uh, of their lyrics and their attitude. I, I just, um, I, I'd right. like to, have, I'd like to have one last word just to show that I'm completely not um, without some knowledge of the band, and I believe this was the last album. What, the, what you want to, you've got a story about the drummer, Rob Kerr? Yeah, no, he played f- cricket for Queensland. <laughs> yeah. No, 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 no. I'm pretty sure this was the last album in which um, lead singer Leif Garrett had long, long flowing <laughs> blonde hair. Uh, very good. It was, however, uh, a devoted Midnight Oil fan. And I, all jokes aside, like me and my mates, I reckon we saw him about 30 odd times. Peter Gifford was the bass player. Uh, for, uh, for us, the high point of them had came with Peter Gifford on bass. He was a ball tearing bass player. All right, the, let's talk movies. Okay. This, no, okay, this time well, I'm confident that I know what I'm talking about. Okay, I hope so. Um, all right, now. Uh, what else came out in 1982? Well, some uh, big ticket items. E.T., uh, Blade Runner, uh, Gandhi. Great performance from Ben Kingsley in Gandhi. Um, I'm surprised. I sort of half expected you to go for this one, which is a really, really good movie and a, a troubling movie, The King of Comedy. Um, yeah, it was an absolute, really, absolute toss of the coin. Yeah, no, I really like that movie. I thought that would be up your alley. But I've gone for, I don't know if you'd call this a cult movie, but this has always been one of my favourite movies. You know, that very popular genre of uh, coming-of-age movies and US high school movies. This was the forerunner, um, and it remains easily the best. I think it's um, fantastic acting performances, uh, a sensitive script. You know, it's really funny, but, you know, there's sort of pathos in there. Probably most notable finding for the roll call of actors that this spawned, most of them in their first roles of any note. Okay, listen to this roll call of actors, Finey. Jennifer Jason Lee, Phoebe Cates, Robert Romanus, Judge Reinhold, Sean Penn, Nicholas Cage, Forrest Whitaker, Eric Stoltz, Anthony Edwards. How's that? Yeah, I, I know the movie you're talking about and certainly famously with Sean Penn's screen debut and the others to follow, a bit of a standout. So I'm talking about Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Now, if you like your sort of teen comedy stuff and you haven't seen this, get on it immediately. It is a fantastic movie. Uh, the main characters, Stacey Hamilton and Mark Ratner, the boy and the girl who are you know, both nice, sensitive kids and they're sort of you know, exploring their sexuality, etc., um, Phoebe Cates and uh, Robert Romanus play their respective best friends. Judge Reinhold plays uh, Brad Hamilton, Stacey's brother. And as you say, Sean Penn, uh, memorably playing the stoned surfer dude, Jeff Spicoli, who has an ongoing battle with his uh, teacher, Mr. Hand. Uh, there's some great scenes in this, uh, like the scene where 
uh, Spicoli crashes Forrest Whitaker, the big football star's car, and they make it look like the opposing high school they're about to play in a football match did it. Um, that is absolutely hilarious. I really, really love this movie. Never get tired of watching it. Um, uh, important culturally, I think it's been acknowledged as that. And still, for me, the pick of that sort of genre of movies, of which there are an enormous amount in the 1980s. Fast Times at Ridgemont High, very funny, very well acted. If you haven't seen it, make sure you take a look. I will. Okay. I love these pregnant pauses you do. I was worried that you're actually not going to say anything. I know. I just uh, gave you a little bit of breathing space to further emphasise how good Fast Times at Ridgemont High is because I've seen the movie and I agree entirely. I think it's an absolute ripper. And mine, I, think Midnight, I think Midnight Oils really liked it. Uh, let's not carry on there. I, oh, yeah. Sorry, go on. To be honest, you forced me into choosing albums when I would rather sometimes just choose singles <laughs> and it would be a lot easier for me just to choose the song I liked. But dancing to your tune, I found that album and I knew you'd be able to help me out with it, not turn it against me, as has now been the case. Now, let's move on to my movie choice. And I think a lot of people love this movie. And for good reason. You know, Dustin Hoffman is a magnificent actor and a lot of people... Uh, might look at his really far more serious, when I say serious roles, his roles in dramas and, and movies like The Marathon Man or Midnight Cowboy, which are great movies but full of serious subject matter, and forget that he's also capable of comedic brilliance. And he hit the heights in 1982 with a movie called Tootsie. Now, of course, Tootsie is one of a handful of movies that people might be able to point to where the basic uh, storyline revolves around, <clears throat> pardon me, a man, for one reason or another, having to transform and uh, go about their daily business as a woman. In fact, one of the other movies that people might remember in this genre was actually made in the same year, Victor Victoria. But... This is the standout for mine, Tootsie, where uh, Dustin Hoffman plays an out-of-work actor who is finding it extremely hard to get work, not because of his ability to act, but because he's such a thorny customer. Basically, he is too difficult to work with. And, you know, the odd expression, you'll never get work in this town. Well, that's basically where he was at. So he, uh, after reading between the lines and seeing an opportunity and jumping at it, is reborn as Dorothy Michaels, the female star of a long-running, much-loved television soap opera. And it definitely differs from a later success in a similar vein, Mrs Doubtfire, in that the laughs are not derived. A lot of the laughs in Mrs Doubtfire come from you know, the need for Robin Williams to quickly change from a man to a woman and those sort of makeup changes and being caught out and looking like, you know, still like a man, half man, half woman, and all the giggles that come with that. Not so in Tootsie. The, those moments are clearly defined. It's really about how he not only takes on Dorothy Michaels professionally, but because of a love interest with Jessica Lang, needs to sort of um, promote... Dorothy Michaels' persona off-screen as Jessica Lang's character 
confides in and becomes good friends with Dorothy Michaels. It's a fantastic movie. I won't give away the reveal, but the reveal back from female actress to male actor is both hilarious and unforgettable. And I think all in all, it's a real tour de force by Dustin Hoffman and I think most people have seen Tootsie and most people love Tootsie and I love Tootsie and I made it my movie of the year. Yep. No, great, great movie. I think suitably rewarded with a a clutch of Oscars. Yep. I shouldn't have said that without checking, but my memory is that it got some at least. All right. Uh, let's talk TV. As you know, Fanny, I usually go through and pick out a few sort of notable uh, events uh, beyond those we chose. Uh, couldn't find too many in 1982, funnily enough, but a couple I was going to point out were uh, this was the debut of the David Letterman show in the US. Yep. Of course, we wouldn't even see that till I think, decades later. Um, also, uh, one of the first, uh, not one of the first hospital dramas, but one of the first sort of real-life gritty-type hospital dramas, St Elsewhere, which uh, I remember being not a bad show. Um, but it also was the year which spawned a long-running sitcom. Uh, ran for seven seasons between 1982 1989, 176 episodes, which, you know, in the modern era is some effort. And uh, the premise was a good one, and I think by and large it worked. I'm talking about finding Family Ties, which was about, uh, well, not really a typical US family because... The protagonist featured a husband and wife team who were former hippies in an earlier life, and their three and later to become four children, um, the eldest of which was memorably played by Michael J. Fox, and in complete contrast to his uh, liberal, in the true sense of the word, parents, former hippies, he was a young Republican. He was a conservative. He frequently dressed in... uh, uh, jackets and ties around the house. He was always trying to, uh, uh, you know, make millions of millions, millions of dollars. Um, and fair to say, there's a bit of philosophical conflict between he and his parents. Uh, he had the parents, incidentally, played by uh, Michael Gross, Stephen Keaton, and Meredith Baxter Burney, great actress. She played Elise Keaton. So Michael J. Fox was Alex, the older son. There, his sister was. Mallory, played by Justine Bateman, who was a materialist and, uh, frankly, a bit of an airhead, and she was often poked fun at. And there was a second daughter, Jennifer, played by Tina Yollers, who was a bit of a tomboy. But the whole premise sort of set up some interesting comedic possibilities, and uh, I think, as a rule, they were explored pretty successfully. I mean, it, you know, it sort of wore out its welcome by the finish, but what sitcom doesn't? I used to watch this pretty regularly and uh, usually got a good laugh out of it. I think it was pretty, you know, again, um, not overly cheesy. There were cheesy moments, but it was generally pretty good humour. I quite enjoyed it. Family Ties is my TV show of 1982. Did you ever watch it? Were you a fan? Loved it. And you missed a bit of a tie-in, mate. Oh, sorry. What was it? Oh, hang on. With your show? No, with your movie. Uh, hang on, let me think. Uh, it's not coming to me. Justine Bateman isn't in Fast Times. Michael J. No, what is it? Well, as you quite rightly pointed out, Fast Times from Ridgemont High was the uh, sort of 
first stepping off point in the careers of some very famous stars and none none more so than Sean Penn, correct? Yep. Well, I would say that arguably the biggest movie star of the last 20 years, maybe of our lifetime, made his noted, I think he might have made an advertisement previously, but certainly made his on-screen debut of note in the very program you're talking about, Family Ties. And who are we talking about? Do you remember a character called Cousin Ned? Oh, I don't, to be honest. <laughs> you're showing me up now. No, who played that? Tom Hanks. Oh, fair income. Yeah, it was their drunk cousin that used to turn up every oh. now and then. And that was cert- call. certainly his first recurring character ever on screen and the kicking off point for a great career. Uh, very good call. All right, what's your TV show? My TV show, look, seven years is a long time to run for a TV series, so well done, Family Ties, but it gets trumped by Cheers that also started in ah, yes. 1982 and was a huge rating success. Uh, it spawned the spin-off of a show that we've already mentioned, I think, on this very segment, Frasier. So it sort of lived on and on, didn't it? And it tells the story of Sam Malone, a former uh, baseballer with the Boston Red Sox, which I think is a nice sort of twist, uh, and the bar that he owns in downtown Boston. It's the place everybody calls home. It famously is, uh, famously is uh, home to two barflies, Cliffy and Norm, who were there throughout the 11 seasons. There were a couple of lineup changes as Sam Malone's number one barman started off as Charlie Pantuso, but... Sadly, the 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 um, character that played Charlie uh, or played by Charlie um, passed away after three seasons and was replaced by Woody Harrelson. And we also had Shelley Long playing uh, love interest and constant frustration Diane to be replaced by Rebecca Howe. And that character also providing constant frustrations. There's the inclusion after a couple of seasons of Kelsey Grammer's Fraser Crane. Um, we have uh, the barmaid, played by Rhea Perlman. And all in all, I think these characters became familiar. We almost felt like we were one of the barflies as we enjoyed Cheers. One of those programs, I really believe, uh, you know, a lot of programs that are on for that long sort of run out of ideas and tend to peter out. And you can say the final couple of years of Famously Happy Days, of course, with Jumping the Shark, but even shows like MASH and other long-running programs tend to run their race. I really feel Cheers, feel Cheers played out the 11 years strongly, and I can't think of a, a sort of timid ending to Cheers. I think it was good while it was on TV all 11 years, and uh, what do you, how do you sort of mark it? I think it's one of the great sitcoms of all time. Ted Danson, of course. Probably, you know, Ted Danson in the lead role. Uh, that's a pretty famous portrait. You know, Ted Danson in Cheers is one of the more famous and most successful of all, um, I believe, sitcom associations. I probably didn't watch enough of it, to be perfectly honest. Every time I did, I enjoyed it. But for some whatever reason, it never became a regular yeah. 
viewing staple and even Frazier. I, I never watched that regularly either, although um, I have seen it a bit more in recent years. And yeah, look, very, very cleverly done. And uh, yeah, no, a, a, a great, good choice, I think. And I think a lot of people would agree with you. Can I just give you the, uh, one, the one line from Cheers that I think so many people love George Wentz's character, um, Norm. You know, he just used to sit at the bar. Yeah. And he was the post. Was he the postman? No, that that was Cliffy. So Cl- oh, Cliffy was more the idiot. Norm was just the um, the the, the constant uh, sort of what a lot of bars might be filled with man avoiding going home. Yeah, and he gave us that famous line, which was um, um, women, you can't live with them. Pass the beer nuts. <laughs> All right, uh, let's finish off with a footy memory. Uh, plenty that happened in 1982. Of course, um, uh, we had major moves in terms of uh, where clubs were uh, domiciled. But I'm going for a, a more obvious one. And uh, anytime people see this clip, they immediately recall it. Uh, I was, I wouldn't say fortunate enough to be there because my side lost. But uh, I'm talking about Lee Matthews famously knocking over the point post at Windy Hill. Uh, in the last quarter of a game, a ball sort of uh, heading towards the behind post, pack of players. Matthews just barrels into the post and the post gives way. Fortunately, didn't injure anyone. Uh, it still fell within the field of play. And uh, it's become a famous moment in footy history. I think Ron Barassi ended up buying the broken post and putting it on display in his Mountain View Hotel in, in Richmond, uh, accompanied by some famous Lou Richards commentary too. He says, oh, talk about a he-man when he does it. Says, what a fantastic effort by Matthews. <laughs> as if, as if you know, like, wow, what a great effort a player split the point post. Um, it, what, the other funny thing about this finding is that that's all anyone talks about. But this was actually a really important game in terms of the composition of the final five. It was round 18. And Essendon were three goals up at three-quarter time and looking for all the world like winners. Matthews had done bugger all. And he came out and played an incredible quarter of footy, kicked a couple, uh, ended up with three, I think gave a couple off. Um, And Hawthorne, from nowhere, uh, rattled on seven goals to one in the last quarter to win quite comfortably in the end. They'd go on and get the double chance. Essendon were condemned to another elimination final, which they would lose. So... um, the splitting of the point post actually came in the midst of a really important and uh, vintage Matthews performance, worth pointing out, I think. All right, what's your uh, footy memory? Well, you know what I really love about our two footy memories, and I think it really sums up this segment, is that yours was actually just a moment in time, wasn't it? The yeah. knocking over of the point post, where I'm going for an entire season, because as you pointed out, it was a a... a Notable season in that South Melbourne, who'd been part of the VFL since 1897 and, of course, the VFA before that, moved up to Sydney to become the Sydney Swans. Now, of course, that was not done without a great deal of heartache and there was that famous meeting at South Melbourne Town Hall and not everybody in red and white favoured the move and it caused a great split in the club and a great split amongst fans. But they lined up for the 1982 season as the Sydney Swans. And in that very first game as the Sydney Swans had a good win over Melbourne at the SCG. And 
you know, just for old time's sake, I'll run through the players who played in that famous game. David Ackley, Stephen Allender, Mark Browning, two Carols, Dennis and Wayne, not related, Rod Carter, Anthony Danaher, Bernie Evans, Silvio Faschini, Colin Hounsell, and did he not kick the first goal? He did. Max James. At the SCG. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Max James, Max Cruz, Paul and Tony Morwood. David Reese jones John Roberts, Barry Round, Brett Scott, Greg Smith, and Stephen Wright. So a pretty good team. And they had a pretty good season. They won 12 and lost 10. And some of those losses were very um, close-fought battles. So, you know, they, they were not a million miles off making the top five. They had a terrible thrashing at Carlton that really sort of mid-season um, sort of brought momentum to a bit of a halt there when... They lost by over 100 points, and that was the game in which Carlton kicked 12 goals in the first quarter. Imagine that nowadays. Uh, yeah. The Swans also won the night series, the night premiership for the first time that year. So there was much to rejoice on field, even though we would later find out. Of course, there was all the craziness going on with Doc Edelston and helicopters and Leanne, and we would find out in later years that conditions for those players up there were anything but AFL or VFL as it was then standard and where they had to train and what they had to go through. But certainly on the surface for the football viewing public, the move up to Sydney in the short term in 1982 had been a great success. So a year of note. All right. No, no, good call. Very important uh, historically in, in the context of the evolution of the national competition. All right. Uh, that's it for this week, Finey. A quick thank you to our wonderful sponsors, please. I reckon we've been doing this podcast this morning long enough for me to have built up an appetite that's going to make me point my car straight in the direction of 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park. And I kid you not, I'm going there. I just want one of those beautiful Andrews hamburgers right now. I really, I could absolutely demolish one. So yeah, Andrews hamburgers. Uh, if it's good enough for me in about half an hour, it should be good enough for everybody else all the time. I'm dying for one. And I might even drop in and say good day to Nick Spartels and he might show me around the latest build of West Point properties. It'll be something beaut because his construction company has the reputation for delivering the best. Two great sponsors and two great companies. Absolutely. Thanks to our wonderful sponsors. Thanks to our wonderful audience once again. And look, if you like what you hear, you want to get behind and actually tangibly help us, there are two ways of doing that. You can head to the Footyology Patreon page, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and pledge your support for our little operation, the website, um, the dual weekly podcast, of course, Footyology Final Siren happening again tonight post-game on my Twitter feed. Check that out. Um, You can pledge some support through that or you can do it through this podcast. And you might have heard my little plug at the top of the show there before we started. You can do that through Acast. Uh, you should find the button there on whatever podcast platform you're using. And we are really grateful for your support. And hopefully a little donation just helps us keep things going. And uh, bit by bit, grow this thing into uh, a media behemoth. No, I doubt it'll ever be a behemoth, but... Uh, We'll give the uh, the major players a bit of uh, a bit of think music at the very least. All right, uh, thanks for listening, everyone. Hope your team has a good win this weekend. Uh, let's hope we see some good footy in round four. We'll be back 
on Sunday evening to talk about all of it. We'll see you later. Go Midnight Oils.